Hello, and welcome to the Bite Size Bible Study Podcast. I'm your host, Phil Shiroki, and today we are going to conclude our look at Galatians 4, verses 21 through 31. This is part two of that look. I just, um, you know, I dug pretty deeply into the relationship between Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, Isaac, and Ishmael in part one. And now we're going to take a different look. You know, just again, Paul's really emphasizing this whole relationship when it comes to exactly, you know, where they are and why, you know, the, the, it, the importance of the covenants of the Old Testament compared to the New Testament, the, the law versus Jesus versus faith in the Messiah. I mean, to this day, we still have a lot of, you know, people really confused on this topic. And it's very sad because, um, I mean, it, it leads, the law leads to spiritual death death and depravity because at the end of the day we cannot save ourselves and nor any action can that we take can nothing can bring us closer to God it's all the Lord and we should really be thankful and grateful for that because the fact that we would want to try to do anything for God it's really an insult to God because again the law just defined what sin was but it gave us no power to you know overcome sin or or change who we are deeply in our hearts but faith in Jesus Christ salvation through the son of God that gives us that power because he again his action and his righteousness everything that he did we are heirs of what what Jesus did and we are clothed in his righteousness. But it all comes down, we have to keep in mind, it's all what God did. And to this day, it's all what God does. So at the end of the day, there's nothing that we can do, no um, rules we can implement, nothing at all. It's a divine process of life experience. It's a divine yielding. It's just, it's putting our faith in the Lord and trusting in him. That's what we're called to. That's what we are. That's everything to God. When we put our faith in him, just like Abraham was the pretty much the original one who put his faith in God and trusted the Lord. You know, I mean, there was definitely, as we saw, I mean, that he had his moments of doubt um, when he got up in age, but he still did believe that although they went and had a child of the flesh out of with Hagar and producing Ishmael, he also always believed in his heart that God would come through and give them the child of promise through Sarah, Isaac, who he would eventually, his, that would be the seed that God uses to bless the entire world, essentially by eventually having Jesus be born from that bloodline and how that's how he blesses the world 
because God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Again, when you look at the intricacies and just the amazing plan that, and it's stated that this was God's plan before the foundation of the world. Again, another divine mystery as to, there's so many questions you can ask, but at the end of the day, we're not here to ask questions. We're simply here to put our faith in the Lord, trust in him and let us, let him lead us through life in every way that we need to be led. So I, um, again, I had a lot of faith one day that I would have, uh, you know, a loving, good relationship with a woman who loved the Lord more than I do. And I have found that in my beautiful bride to be Mia Moore. I, um, you know, it's a little testimony I have, but it's an amazing testimony at the same time, because again, I mean, every time I have her in front of me or in my arms or we have a conversation or we're growing in the Lord together, it's just more, it it builds my faith. I told her this weekend while we were out to brunch after church, I said, you know, it's, it's really amazing how my faith in the Lord has grown so much since I met her. Just, I mean, it's a, it's a life altering experience to meet, you know, your, your, your um, spouse or your spouse to be, if you will. But it's an, it's also a very amazing spiritual shift that you have when you see God answer such an amazingly uh, special prayer and holding on to hope for so many years. And now finally it's here. It's really incredible. So I'm very thankful and grateful for her. And um, on that note, Let's wrap up our look right now at Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 31. All right, so now we are going to look at a verse. We're going to flip back to Isaiah. We're going to look at a verse that kind of relates to Galatians 4, verse 26. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. So we're going to be in Isaiah 2, verses 1 through 4, where it says, this book of Isaiah is one of my favorite books. I, I like Isaiah a lot. Um, he's He was just a, a very um, gifted prophet, you could say. Well, blessed by the Lord. What can I say? It wasn't him. It was always God. And that's that. So, all right, let's get into again, the note for that section. It says, or excuse me, um, Isaiah chapter two, verse one through four, we'll read that passage. And then we'll look at the notes for that section. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths for out of Zion shall go forth the law. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, he shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. 
neither shall they learn war anymore. Let's look at the notes for that section because, again, it's Isaiah talking about, you know, Jerusalem. And the this is the future house of God is what my um, Spirit-Filled Life New King James Version Bible subtitles that section. And it's talking about the new Jerusalem, essentially, the, the, the um, place that is yet to be made or created by the Lord. But at that consummation again on the, of the day of the Lord, this is where the Lord will dwell for a thousand years, his reign and millennial. And that'll be an amazing, amazing time in which we will get to literally rule and reign with Jesus, our Lord and Savior. So looking at the notes for that section, word that Isaiah saw, a revelation from God to Isaiah's inner eye of spiritual perception, not a natural talent enhanced. This passage is almost identical to Micah 4, 1 to 3. The cessation of war and a universal divine rule as the future hope were and are so important that God revealed this eloquent passage to both prophets. The language here is messianic, applying in part to the church age, in part to the millennium and the world to come. Amen and hallelujah. So, speaking of Micah, chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, let's actually flip up to look at that section because I think it's pretty amazing how, again, it says, essentially, it's very, they're very similar passages, but at the end of the day, they're two separate prophets. Micah, the book of Micah was written, recorded in sometime between 704 BC and... 696 BC, whereas Isaiah was written about 700 to 690 BC. So interestingly enough, you can see that those time frames are pretty close to close in time. So it even adds, if you will, a, a bit more of credibility to the fact that it was the Holy Spirit divinely inspiring both prophets both men writing completely separate books, yet they had very similar visions of this new Zion and this new Jerusalem that's to come in the age of the millennium. So let's look at it again. We're going to be in Micah. We're going to look at verses chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. My Spirit-Filled Life, New King James Version Bible subtitles this section, The Lord's Reign in Zion. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains, and shall be exalted above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. 
For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all people walk each in the name of his God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Amen and hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. I look forward to that time more than anything else. So one reason I wanted to look at that section is because this, the notes for Micah 4, 1 through 5, really expand and kind of um, just kind of give some more clarity into what Isaiah was saying in chapter 2, 1 to 4. So let's look at the notes here. It says, although this is a familiar Old Testament passage, its interpretation varies among Christians. It is obviously prophesying end-time realities, but the degree to which it is to be taken literally, an end-times war involving a return to the use of actual swords, which are afterward literally beaten into plowshares, or symbolically shall beat their swords into plowshares, symbolizing the eventual cessation of war and evil, is not totally clear. We can, however, grasp its essence. A world under God's authority and craving instruction in his ways. As for the fulfillment of its essence, we know from the New Testament concept of the kingdom of God that many of these dynamics have already begun through the kingdom's current reign exercised by the church. The millennium will see more realization of Micah's prophecy and the world to come will see its consummation. The mountain of the Lord's house can be seen as referring to the spiritual kingdom of God that Micah says would come in the latter days, a term signifying the coming epoch of the Messiah some seven centuries after Micah. The law here means instruction or teaching and is not a technical term for the Mosaic Code. So quickly there, when it says in Isaiah and here, um, for out of Zion, the law shall go forth. I was a little alarmed at first. I was like, the law, wait a minute. But it's saying here, think more so law as in order, as in um, godly order shall be taught and shall flow from Zion. So it's that simple, not necessarily the law of Moses. The authentic look of this peaceful kingdom is portrayed in the rural imagery of a farmer resting outdoors under his grape arbor or in the shade of his fig tree. The guarantee of peace is secured by the fact that the Lord has his angelic armies, hosts, to back up his promise of security. Walking in the name of one's God indicates identification with that deity. Because human beings are dependent they take on their deity's manners and are unashamed to have their name associated with him or her as followers. The faithful boldly assert that the only true God is their God, the Lord, Yahweh. This verse is a stark reminder that verses 1 through 4 are yet future, for men are still worshiping other gods. Amen and hallelujah. All right, so we have a few more verses to look at here when it comes to wrapping up our look at Galatians 4. So next we are going to flip back to Isaiah, actually. But this is going to be a verse that relates to Galatians 4.27, where it says, For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. 
Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. So let's look again. We're going to go back to Isaiah 54, 1. We're just going to look at one verse from this particular book, and then we're going to flip up to a different book that kind of relates and expands a little bit on that idea there. So again, we're going to be in Isaiah 54, chapter 54, verse 1, where it says, Sing, O barren, you who have not born, break forth into singing and cry aloud. You who have not labored with child, for more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. Amen. And then looking at the note for that section, the good news of the atoning work and exiliation of the servant is followed by a command to the barren woman, Israel, to prepare for expansion of Yahweh's covenant family. Israel in captivity is compared to a barren woman, an object of disappointment and scorn in the ancient world. To sing in the face of such a state would be a cruel act, were it not for the power of song. Isaiah's word is to deal with the barrenness through worship to enthrone God in song in order to release his miraculous provision. So kind of relating to that, we're going to flip up next to Psalm 22. We're going to flip back, excuse me, to Psalm 22. We're going to look at Psalm 22 verses 3 and 4, where it just talks a little more. I mean, David was, you know, um, he played the harp a lot. He was, he loved to worship God. And I personally love to worship God as well. I frankly listen to worship music 90% of the time when I'm listening to any music because it's just so edifying. It's so, um, so there's so much good contemporary Christian music these days, but mainly worship music. I'm really not into a lot of, um, you know, Christian artists per se, if you will. Although there are definitely some good Christian artists out there. I don't blow it off at all. But, you know, I prefer just legit worship music because um, it's very edifying. You know, it, it keeps you obviously focused on the Lord and um, keeps my mind in a good place, my soul, my spirit. And, um, you know, it um, it's very edifying. Again, I just can't, I guess that's the word that I would really use because, you know, you listen to the garbage on the radio that the world pumps out these days. It just gets darker and darker as the times get darker and darker. I really have no um, no desire to listen to any of that trash at all because it's, again, just that. It's garbage and trash. So just like, unfortunately, a lot of what the world offers us is nothing but garbage and trash. So, all right, let's look at, again, Psalm 22, verses 3 and 4, and we'll go from there. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you, they trusted, and you delivered them. Looking at the notes for that section, since God is enthroned in the praises, worship is the key to entering fully into his presence. The concept here is that praise releases God's glory, thus bringing to the worshipers actualized responses of his kingly reign. His enthroned responses through the Holy Spirit can take many forms, such as prophecy, healings, miracles, affirmation to individual hearts, a call to reverential silence and awe, 
conviction of sin and salvation of sinners. This verse shall be guided, shall be a guiding goal for all personal and corporate worship times. Amen. I mean, I can think personally of many times when I've been worshiping and God just does so many miraculous things and his presence. I mean, that's the best part about worship is, you know, when two or more are present, you know, where two or more are, are, you know, together worshiping the Lord, God typically shows up and he, the presence of the Lord is the most peaceful thing you'll ever experience on this earth, easily hands down. And, you know, God has shown me many things while, while praising. He's shown me, given me visions, given me understanding. Like it says here, he's spoken to me. He's convicted me when I need to be convicted. He's comforted me when I needed comfort. You know, I mean, all of those things that, that open up that, that um, Holy Spirit to just move and work. And there's something very special about praising the Lord and yielding to him and, and giving him the worship that is due him because he is holy, holy, holy is the Lord, our God. And he is, we can never praise and worship him enough. And, you know, it's submission. It's saying we are not worthy. We, we are nothing. We, we give you all the glory. You know, I mean, that's what I mean when I say I love to really get into worship music because it really puts you, settles your heart and and puts you in a state in which God really can work, you know. Um, you know, that submission, that yielding, that that's that's what God wants from his people and he blesses us with so much, you know. I mean, it's a very amazing reciprocal relationship that frankly, God gave us enough with Jesus alone, but he also works in so many other ways too that he's just he's incredible like that and that's why he's our good father. He's Jehovah Jireh. He's our provider. His grace is sufficient for us. And it is. He is always. So let's look at the notes here for, uh, we looked at the notes, but I want to look at, there's some kingdom dynamics section, a kingdom dynamics section here that really deals with praise. And I really want to look at that because Again, um, I'll read the verses real fast and then we'll go from there. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. So, again, looking at the kingdom dynamic section here, these are just sections in my spirit-filled life, New King James Version Bible, that really kind of just expand on what's being said and just give you a more in-depth look at um, just, you know, the the idea and the concepts behind the scripture. So, praise the pathway to God's presence praise pathway. Unquestionably, one of the most remarkable and exciting things about honest and sincere praise is taught here. Praise will bring the presence of God. Although God is everywhere present, there is a distinct manifestation of his rule which enters the environment of praise. Here is the remedy for times when you feel alone, deserted, or depressed. Praise. However simply, Compose your song and testimony of God's goodness in your life. The result, God enters. His presence will live, take up residence in our lives. The word inhabit in Hebrew, yoshab, means to sit down, to remain, to settle, or marry. In other words, God does not merely visit us when we praise him, but his presence abides with us and we partner with him in a growing relationship. Let this truth create faith and trust and 
lead to deliverance from satanic harassments, torment, or bondage. Notice how this text ties three words together, praises, trusted, and delivered. Amen. Hallelujah. So many times I've been in, like I just, just said, I mean, I've been in church and I've just been with others or not even in church sometimes, just, just praising the Lord, whenever it may be. And that time, I mean, the way God works, the special ways in which God works during those times is just unbelievable. You know, it, it's again, it, it's just allowing him to just fully be lifted up and us saying, just praising our God. I mean, you know, it's amazing how people go through life. They'll sing their songs. They'll, they'll shout out all these dessert, these, these just absolute, just disastrous causes and things. Yet we as Christians sometimes feel hesitant to do the same for the Lord, for our God who saved us and laid down his life for us and gives us everything we have in life. You know, it's like, you know, we should have absolutely no hesitation, fear, worry, or embarrassment about lifting up the Lord whenever we feel compelled to do so. Um, obviously in a sane manner, you know, within the context of, of normal human interaction. But I'm saying, you know, there should be definitely a, um, no hesitation again, and a, and a, um, an adoration for the Lord to the point of where, when you feel compelled to, you know, for example, when you're in church and if you're feeling grateful and thankful or you need healing or whatever it may be, put your hands up. Don't be hesitant. Don't let Satan lie to you and say, you know, who's looking at you or what people might think. Who cares? That's your intimate, special time. Just pretend it's you and God in that room. And really it is because it's about worshiping the Lord. And, you know, I'm not saying this legalistically. You don't have to put your hands up. You don't have to do anything. But, you know, if you feel compelled, this is just an example, to put your hands up and praise the Lord, do it. I'm telling you, I do it when I feel compelled. I don't do it all the time. But when I do, you know, it just feels good to surrender to the Lord and to his spirit and to just say, thank you, Jesus. You know, it's that simple. So, all right. So let's look again at some more, ver another kingdom dynamic here. This one is still relating to Psalm 22.3. This says, establishing God's throne, worshiping, worship and the kingdom. The Psalms were the praise hymnal of the early church and as such are laden with principles fully applicable for New Testament living today. Quickly, I mean, there are so many great songs still coming out with Psalm, if not directly singing the Psalms, very heavy influence from certain Psalms. I have one now, Psalm 46, that I listen to all the time, which is just incredibly good. You can find many different versions of it. Um, I won't shout any specific artists out, but there's so many good versions of it out. We sang it in this, in church Sunday and my girlfriend and I both looked at each other like that song is amazing. And we, we downloaded it right away on our, our shared little praise list that we have. And it's just a great song, but point being again, you know, they're, they're, the Psalms are incredible to really get into or just read them, you know, sing them, you know, how, whatever you, however you worship the Lord, 
Just worship him. That's the point. So, all right, picking up on that note, few principles are more essential to our understanding than this one. The presence of God's kingdom power is directly related to the practice of God's praise. The verb enthroned indicates that wherever God's people exalt his name, he is ready to manifest his kingdom's power in the way most appropriate to the situation as his rule is invited to invade our setting. It is this fact that properly leads many to conclude that in a very real way, praise prepares a specific and present place for God among his people. Some have chosen the term establish his throne to describe this enthroning of God in our midst by our worship and praising welcome. God awaits the powerful and praise-filled worship of his people as an entry point for his kingdom to come, that is, to enter, that his will be done in human circumstances. We do not manipulate God, but align ourselves with the great kingdom truth. His is the power, ours is the privilege, and responsibility to welcome him into our world, our private present world, or the circumstances of our society. Amen and hallelujah. Good stuff. Again, just talking about praise, you know, talking about just the reality of what exactly praise does. Again, that was just all derived from Galatians chapter 4, verse 27 you know, where basically a psalm is quoted there, and then we just kind of went off a little bit and looked exactly why we, why we praise. Why do we rejoice? What, what is it to rejoice about? How do we rejoice? So now we're going to look at a note for Isaiah, or excuse me, Galatians, still in chapter 4 for verse 28, where Paul says, Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. Amen. Let's flip back to the book of Acts. We're going to look at Acts chapter 3, verse 25, where, again, we're looking at, uh, people believe that good old Luke probably wrote the book of Acts, but we'll find out one day when we're in heaven, like my pastor says. I don't know if I'll care then, but maybe I will. All right. So let's look at Acts chapter 3, verse 25. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Amen. And that seed was Isaac. And uh, let's look at the note here and we'll go from there. All right. So the note for, again, Acts chapter 23, verse Excuse me, Acts chapter 3, verse 25. Peter reminds, oh, so maybe Peter wrote this. Maybe Peter wrote Acts. I don't know. It is a question. This note says, Peter reminds a Jewish leader. Okay, so this is during Peter's, all right, so the reason why it specifies Peter here is because this is during Peter's sermon, and he just goes off, actually. This is an awesome, awesome, um, uh, just, uh, encounter that Peter has, but he um, just really 
is preaching to the people, um, to the Jewish people. And it, again, I'm kind of just bouncing around a little bit here. But initially, I said Luke wrote that, wrote the Book of Acts, which I, I it's pretty accepted that I, they think he did. But um, again, this is Peter particularly talking in verse 25 of chapter 3. It says, Peter reminds the Jewish leaders that the Abrahamic Abrahamic covenant promise of God of Genesis 12, 1 to 3 shows that God never intended to limit his covenant blessing to the Jewish bloodline of Abraham's family. So that's true. I mean, when it comes down to it, that that verse again, essentially in Genesis you know, God says that you're, okay, well, you know what? Instead of talking about it, let's actually go back and just read it. Because that's my next note anyway. And there's a good reason why I wanted to look at it. So let's jump back to Genesis. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 12. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 3, where it says, Promises to Abram. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in all the families of the earth, and excuse me, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So again, that's basically a very... It can be confusing, especially to the, you know, uh, you know, when it came down to it, you know, the the um, leaders of the time, the scribes and Pharisees, they basically um, the Sanhedrin, they all claimed that they were just Abraham's children. That was their claim to fame, if you will. That was also their their prideful boast to Jesus himself. When he, um, well, we're going to look at that pretty soon, but that was that they loved to, um, they hung their hat on the fact that they were Abraham's seed and that was good enough for anything in life. And um, what we see here is that very last verse, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I'm sure at the time, you know, it was a little perplexing. If you look at that verse, they probably skimmed over that one pretty quickly when they were reading out of the Torah, because, you know, again, when it comes down to it, how is it that all the families will be of the earth will be blessed if, you know, essentially they were thinking that, well, only Abraham's descendants will be blessed. Well, we now know how that happened because it says again, in, in Abram, in his seed, that being from Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all the way down to David, all the way to Christ, and now us. Um, again, we're blessed by God through our faith in Jesus Christ. Just to clarify, there, I don't want to. We're <laughs> Jesus Christ is Lord. He is our Savior. He is everything, but He is the one who He's the Son of God, the one and only, and He is one third of the amazing, amazing triune godhead so but again we we are entered into this covenant and accepted by god through jesus christ because of this promise excuse me initially made to abraham way back in genesis chapter 12 it, i actually really look forward to doing a study on abram and then eventually known as abraham someday because obviously very important 
cog in humanity when it comes down to it. But I, I would really like to see exactly, like, why did God choose Abraham? You know, just why? Like, was was it, I? I guess it goes back to that divine appointment. You know, God chose Abraham it, for a very good specific reason. God chose Abraham to be the um, basically the uh, um, you know the I don't know what you would say the the head of the family, if you will, of the uh, the head of his his chosen people. Um, I guess you know it's an interesting just thought right there that he would just choose somebody like that. But I would never question the Lord. I, I just it's a it's another divine mystery. As you can see in these episodes, I'm really coming to some some hard. Uh, truths and realities that, you know, usually I can just spout off and try to explain everything that I read. But, you know, there's sometimes when I have to stop myself and just say, you know, that's just God being God. And that's who he is. And he has obviously every right to make those calls as he sees them. And um, I just, it, it's, <laughs> there are things that I believe in heaven will will get more understanding with. Um Again, I don't know if we'll care about certain things that we care about now, but I know those things, we may not even be conscious of our understanding of those things, but we will definitely understand when we see God face to face, because then all of it will make sense, and we'll see truly how small and insignificant we are and how glorious, great, and holy He is. So, all that said, let's look at the notes for Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, and we'll go from there. A totally sovereign call, God's command to get out from your family, was a test of faith to Abram. He was called to give up all that was dear for an unknown land. How Abram came to know Yahweh is not revealed. So there you go. I guess that kind of note there is kind of hinting at what I was saying is like where all of a sudden is Abram just like this dude who God is just like, you're going to be the father of everyone, including the eventual Messiah. But, you know, it's just one of those things. I'm kind of giggling and laughing because it's just it, the Lord is so interesting to me when he he like his ways are so amazing and he just chose abram you know i and i'm but as much as i want to say i'm sure there's reasons i i I have to stop myself because there's because god said so it's that simple sometimes it's that simple and he's always good and he always has good intention and he obviously always makes the right choice Wow, how amazing. So, all right, picking up the note, picking up here on the notes for, again, Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3. God's plan from the beginning of redemptive history has been global. God's work in Abram's life will be so evident, he shall be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Throughout Old Testament history, individuals and nations who blessed Abram's descendants were blessed by God. Those who persecuted them, God cursed. So that's where, you know, this is a very famous, this is a well-known passage too. I mean, I'm sure everybody that's probably listening to this, all three of you have, have heard this before. But, um, you know, it's 
again, you know, God will bless those who bless you and will curse those who curse you. That was, you know, talking about Abram and his descendants. We're his descendants. Hello. So, you know, that's why we're called to pray for our enemies always, because let God, trust me, God will take care of everything in the background and, and spiritually when it comes to every situation in our life and every person that's both good and bad in our life. We're called to be faithful to the Lord, you know, walk in his ways and leave everything up to him. And I promise you this, 100% God will always take care of everything in our lives. 100%, I can guarantee that. I've lived it for 43 years so far. So I can definitely testify to the truth and reality of that entire promise. Again, going back to this, that main theme here in this whole, you know, um, scripture, this whole section of scripture in Galatians 4, 21 to 31, when God makes a promise, it comes to pass. And when God says he'll do something, he'll do it in his time, in his amazing ways. So have no fear. God will definitely do it. So all right, so let's look at the king dynamics for this section, again, of Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And um, first, we're going to look at that word families, actually, in twelve uh, Genesis 12, 3, where, again, the Lord says, And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That word families is mishpachoa. Mispachoa, a family of people, a type, class, or kind of people or things, a species of animals, a group of related individuals, a tribe, or a group of related things, a category. The main concept of Mispachoa is that people, animals, or things that share a kinship or similarity of kind form a family clan or species thus its scope can be as narrow as an immediate family or as broad as a whole nation genesis 12 1 through 3 indicates that god separated abraham from his idolatrous family in order to make him and his descendants the messianic nation which would bring salvation to all earth's families Amen and hallelujah. I love that. I love that note, especially the end where it says, in order to make him and his descendants the messianic nation, which would bring salvation to all earth's families. We are part of that messianic nation. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. That's amazing. Absolutely incredible stuff. All right. We're going to look now at the kingdom dynamics for, again, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. This first one is called God's prosperity, God's heart to prosper his people. In this passage, God promises to make Abraham great, and God did bless Abraham in many ways, including material blessing. Um, see chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, where we see how Abraham was made very rich. See also chapter 2435, where Abraham's servant reports that the Lord has blessed my master greatly. 
and then enumerates the material blessings that God had given to Abraham. The dynamic of this historic fact becomes pertinent to every believer today. In Galatians 3, verses 13 and 14, God promises to give all believers the blessings of Abraham, telling us that Jesus became a curse for us so that we might receive the blessings of Abraham. This begins, of course, with our being born again or becoming new creatures in Christ Jesus. But the blessings of Abraham involve other things as well. The Lord wants us to prosper spiritually, emotionally, and physically, and materially. The blessings are ours by his promise, and we need make no apology for the fact that prosperity is included. Amen and hallelujah. I've elaborated on that in the past. I feel at this point, people know, look, it comes down first and foremost, the most important prosperity we can have is spiritually and then emotionally and physically and then materially last. Very appropriate order for that thing. Not saying we're not to be blessed and thank God he does provide blessing. But at the end of the day, we're born in this world naked. We leave naked. I mean, everything else is just very second uh, second to our spiritual, emotional, and physical wealth. Even physical wealth is really not as important as our spiritual wealth being the most important because that's truly the treasure. That's what God gave us. That That's that currency that cannot be measured in any other shape, form, or fashion. The the free gift of God, of salvation from God himself through Jesus Christ is the most, it's the greatest thing that God will ever get, has, at least up at this point, will, we can receive in this life. That's true prosperity and all things flow from that. So, all right, next we're going to look at another kingdom dynamic. This one is foundations of the kingdom, prototype kingdom person. Abraham is shown in both Old Testament Old Testament and New Testament as the prototype of all who experience God's processes of seeking to reinstate man through redemption, first and foremost in his relationship to God by faith without works. But too seldom is the second facet of redemption noted. Abraham is also shown as a case of God's program to recover man's reign in life. Abraham is designated as the father of all who walk his path of faith. As such, he is God's revealed example of his plan to eventually reestablish his kingdom's rule in all the earth through people of his covenant. Through Abraham, whom he wills to become a great nation restoring rule, and to whom he chooses to give a great name restoring authority, God declares his plans be modeled after this prototypical father of faith. This truth is confirmed in Romans chapter 4 verse 13, where Abraham's designation as heir of the world parallels Jesus's promise that his followers who humble themselves in faith shall also be recipients of the kingdom and shall inherit the earth. Amen. Incredible stuff there. And we are going to now flip up to a verse that relates 
well, a passage in John that relates to Galatians 4.30, where Paul says, Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So we're going to flip back again to the good old gospel of John, probably my favorite gospel. And we're going to be in chapter 8, and we're going to look at verses 31 through 58. Where, again, this is just Jesus, I mentioned earlier, where the, you know, the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders used to love to relish in the fact that they were direct descendants, pretty much blood descendants of Abraham. But let's look at what the Lord really, let's look at a full context of what all, all that means when it comes down to the law versus salvation. The truth shall make you free. Again, picking up, this is John chapter 8, verse 31. We're going to look at 31 through 58. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants, and, how, and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will make free? Excuse me, you will be made free. Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin, and a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Amen and hallelujah. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me, because my word has no place in you. I speak and I have seen with my father. And you do not have, excuse me, and you do what you have seen with your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me and man, excuse me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, We are not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for his, he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. Then the Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. And I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. 
Then the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead, and the prophets, and you say, If anyone keeps my word, you shall never taste death. And you are greater than our father Abraham, who is dead, and the prophets are dead. You who, excuse me, who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I honor my father, excuse me, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Amen. I love that passage because I love Jesus declaring his divinity. You can see the religious leaders were just going after him every chance and opportunity they got. They insulted him, saying they're not products of, accusing Jesus of being a product of fornication. You know, they were just, they hated Jesus. They really did. It was really, just to read that, uh, you know, the more I grow spiritually, the, the deeper some of this stuff gets to me. And to really see how much they hated him and how how just cruel they were to the Messiah standing right before them. What idiocy, I have to say. What fools they were. And, um, huh, you know, there's going to be a day of reconciliation with everybody that, that you know, doesn't believe in blasphemes the Holy Spirit. They were the, they were the original blasphemers of the Holy Spirit. So let's look at the notes for that section. Then we'll finish up our look at, again, Galatians 4, 21 to 31. The claim of the people to be descendants of Abraham was futile because their deeds evidenced a lack of any moral relationship to him. If they were truly children of God, they would reverence the Son of God. Instead, their reaction against Jesus only revealed the sobering fact that the devil was their father. It is not ethnic or family pedigree that makes one acceptable to God, but honoring God by believing in and loving Jesus Christ. Amen and hallelujah. I mean, the irony of how they were just so brash and brazen and falsely confident in, in who they were is just, really unbelievable when you really read those accounts but picking up at the note for John 8:53 50 excuse me John 8:58 again where Jesus said to them most assuredly I say to you before Abraham was I am so looking at the note that that's such a powerful thing Jesus says there because the verb ought to be translated was born indicating that Abraham's life had a specific beginning. This stands in sharp contrast to Jesus' self-claim, I am. In other words, he was without beginning, the ever-present one. I mean, that's Jesus right there. I, in that time to say that before Abraham was, I am, that 
the religious leaders knew exactly what Jesus was saying and implying there by saying those words. And um, they were not very happy. That was one of the final real, I mean, look, Jesus had many encounters with the religious leaders of the time, but that was a specific event that really, you know, after that, I believe they tear their clothes. They just get absolutely infuriated with Jesus because he's all but saying he's the son of God. He's the Messiah. And he's making a claim to be divine. And they saw that as a great blasphemy. But ironically, they were the ones blaspheming the Holy Spirit by denying Jesus right there. So, all right. All that said, that is going to wrap up our look at Galatians chapter 4. We looked at verses 21 through 31 today. Again, tried to study out the two covenants, kind of where they came from, the example Paul used. Maybe I went a little too in-depth into, you know, I got a little deep into the forest instead of, you know, just um, kind of just letting the trees do the, the the view, if you will. But I did want to address, again, just a little more depth into why that's such an important thing in, in just the reality of the overall picture of life and the two covenants. And again, Paul speaking to the Judaizers at the time was really making a strong point in bringing up that entire scenario. So all that said, until next time, God bless and have a great day.